Here at City, we are moving through a teaching series that's preparing us for Easter. It's entitled, Crown Him King. My family, especially my children, have asked that I would take a DNA test. And there's two reasons for this. One of them is, is because I'm adopted. And we don't know a whole lot about my history, my backstory. We do know that my birth father lived along the Canadian Rocky Mountains. He had a house on a stream where he fished and hunted. And my birth mother was from Calgary, Alberta. I was born in, in, in Vancouver, British Columbia is where I was born. But my family wants me to have a DNA test because my history, my backstory, we just don't know all that much. That's one reason. The other reason why um, my family, my kids especially, want me to have a DNA test is because I get tanned very easily. And the theory is, is that in my DNA mix would be some native Canadian Indian. That's what we assume. And so they've asked that I would take this DNA test, and I, I haven't done it yet. But I think if I did, and our assumption is correct, it would really kind of backfill some of my history and really give us some history about where I'm from and who I am. Now, one of the things that I can say is that if it is true that I have native Canadian in my genetic makeup, I firmly believe, if that's accurate, that I am probably the great-great-great-grandson of someone like Sitting Bull or Tecumseh, you know, one of these famous Indian chiefs. How many of you romanticize your history a little bit, you know? But if it is true that I have some native Canadian Indian in me, that would explain several things. One of them is why I tan relatively easily. But it also would explain why I love to hunt and fish and I love to be in the great outdoors. In fact, yesterday, I was in the great outdoors with a friend of mine. We were in the woods for a while. And then I texted my wife and said, let's take a walk together up Monticello Trail and we'll walk up to Monticello. I just love being in the woods. But it would kind of explain uh, uh, another thing. That is this. If it is true that I have Canadian, native Canadian Indian in me, then it would help me to explain something to my wife that she's going to find out right now. <laughs> it would explain why I had a deer tick crawling on my arm as I was getting into bed last night. <laughs> but you see, if I do have Canadian Indian in me, then it would explain why I love to be in the woods, why I get tanned very easily, why I was in the woods yesterday, why I had a deer tick on my arm, and I can literally blame all of that on my DNA, my genetic makeup, my history. And I can blame all, all of that on that now, even though I've never taken the genetic test yet, I can still blame all of it on that. The idea here is, is that your history matters hugely. Who you are and what makes you you is mission critical. The reality of it is, it's the same as true with Easter. Easter has a deep, deep, rich history to it. And if you don't know the backstory and you don't know the history, then Easter just kind of seems like it ought to be submitted to Christmas. You see, Santa Claus gets a lot more press than the Easter Bunny. Because of that, a lot of us believe that Christmas is the big deal and Easter is subservient and secondary to Christmas. But I want to tell you it's the exact opposite biblically. Only two of the Gospels even mention the birth of Jesus. But all four Gospels spend tons of time explaining 
Easter, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what's even more incredible is the Bible from beginning to end finds its focal point in Easter, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, many of us here at City have been going through a reading plan to get some of the backstory to Easter. Many of us have been reading N.T. Wright's daily devotional found on the YouVersion Bible app that brings us towards Easter. And it gives us a deep biblical understanding and a theological understanding of what Easter is. Others of us have been going through the Read Through the Bible in a Year program. Many of us committed to that at the beginning of the year. I will not ask for a show of hands to see how many of you are actually still current. Here's why. If you raise your hand, that's pride. And if you don't raise your hand, you're guilty. So either way, we lose. But for others of us, you come from a high church background. And the common book of prayer is something that you're very, very familiar with. In fact, some of us who are now part of city had a high church in your background, and the common book of prayer is something that's very near and dear to your heart. And if you would happen to be going through a reading plan, moving towards Easter, from the common book of prayer, you would be reading some very, at the outset, odd texts some odd scriptures that at first swipe don't seem to make a lot of sense. As you move through the Lenten season, your first 10 days, you would have been reading from the exciting book of Deuteronomy. Then, for the next 20-odd days, you would have been reading from the book of Jeremiah. Deuteronomy covers what happened to Moses 1,500 years before Jesus. You see, the people of Israel were exiting their slavery and their bondage to the Egyptian empire, and as they're moving out of bondage and they're moving towards the promised land, just before they enter in, through Moses, God brings to them His law, and He establishes with them a covenant a covenant. And the book of Deuteronomy lays out for the Israelite people what it looks like to live for God inside of that covenant. And in it, you find laws about lending money. You find laws about crimes. You find laws in the book of Deuteronomy that teaches the Israelite people what it looks like to live as a civil society. Why is that important? Well, it's extremely important because for centuries they've lived in captivity, they've lived in slavery, they have not been a people, they have not been a nation, and now that they're free, God, because He loves them, gives them the book of Deuteronomy so they can know how to be a people and collectively move together towards God's best and God's blessed future. It's known as the law of God. And so for generations, the Israelite people focus on the book of Deuteronomy because within it is the covenant life that God will bless. Now it seems odd that you would be reading for 10 days in the common book of prayer as you get ready for Easter, that you would be reading about Deuteronomy. But it's fascinating. Those readings bring you deeply into the blessings and the cursings that come from living within that covenant relationship with God. If you live the book of Deuteronomy, you're blessed, and if you don't live it, you're cursed. Now, what's incredible is that here at City, for the 20 years that I've served as the lead pastor of City Church, we've had innumerable people that have come up on this stage or the stage at City Church Central, and they have shared with you their story. As a matter of fact, some of you heard it two weeks ago when we had the water baptismal up here on the stage, and there was an individual that was baptized, and they began to tell their story. And their story looked something like this. 
I was raised in the church or near the church. Or the story will go, I knew what was right, I had a conscience. God's Spirit would convict me of things that I was doing. But at some point, these individuals make a determination that they want to walk away from God. And so in essence, what they do is they leave a life of living for God, and they intentionally say, I feel like God is cramping my style, God is keeping me from doing what I want to do, and so they throw the things of God over their shoulder. They take the Scriptures and throw them over their shoulder. They take the conviction of the Holy Spirit and throw it over their shoulder, and the reason why they do it is they want to be free. They want to be free. The problem is, is that when you do that, You move out from underneath God's best, and many would say that that's what it looks like to be free, that God has been constraining me, but when I step out from under what's best in God's world, I step into a world where someone else is now in control, and His intent for my life is to crush me and to kill me and to destroy me. So what looks like freedom ultimately is not. Some may say that, hey, this is what you do to be free, but you get there, and inevitably what will happen? At some point in time, the wind direction changes. And when the wind direction changes, the person suddenly has sort of a full frontal blast of where they're at. And it's at that point that many people discover that instead of being free, they are now in horrible bondage. And instead of being free, they've stepped into a world where now they feel like they're separated even within themselves. That there's this separation where they're torn literally from within, where they feel like they are two separate and opposing people. And there's a sense of dysfunction and discomfort. And there's a sense that things are just not the way that God had intended. And in that moment when they stop and they turn and they look back at all the stuff they've thrown over their shoulder, Christ is there to meet them and to set them free. I've heard that story innumerable times. Listen. When Jeremiah begins to speak to Israel, he's speaking to them at a moment like what I just explained. The people of God, the Israelite nation, is in a covenant relationship with God from when Moses brings them out of the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses handing off the baton of leadership to Joshua, and Joshua takes them across the river into the promised land. But that book is all about this covenant relationship. And in the moment when Jeremiah begins to prophesy is the moment when the wind of change hits them. They have denied their covenant relationship. They are outside of relationship with God. When trouble hits, they begin to look to other kings and other things to satisfy that tornness, that separatedness within their own soul as a nation. And when they do that, things get even worse. And so Jeremiah, for the first 30 chapters, is preaching God's judgment. You see, in the Older Testament, there's what's called prophets. And prophets are positioned to prophesy over the nation of Israel over the religious system, and over the king. Jeremiah's been so harsh that the king tried to have him killed, but Jeremiah was able to escape. And in that moment, just like people that have been on this stage and have shared their story, all of a sudden the wind changes direction, they're confronted with who they are and what they are, and in that moment, they hear the prophet Jeremiah begin to draw breath again, and he's getting ready to prophesy over them. What they're expecting is that he would prophesy again God's judgment. But miraculously, something different happens. 
And I would like for you to read with me from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what you would read if you were reading the common book of prayer on April 8th, which is the last day of this year just before we step into the Holy Week. This would be your last reading as you're preparing for the week of Easter. And so what we have is Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're going to begin reading in verse 31. Here's what Jeremiah prophesies over the people. We read it together to start out our service. Here's what Jeremiah prophesies. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And here's what God says. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they will come to know me. And then the last verse, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now listen, when we hear this text that's taken from the common book of prayer that happens just before Easter week hits, We look at it, and as we read it, it doesn't maybe have the impact that it should. You see, the prophet Jeremiah recognizes the total dysfunction and destruction of the nation of Israel. At the point where he prophesies, the nation of Israel lies in ruins. The religious system has been defiled. The religious system is completely washed away. The political system is broken and dysfunctional. They've been conquered as a people. And the Bible tells us that the parents, when they think about the future, it says this, it's like they have eaten sour grapes. Literally what it says in the book of Jeremiah. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, like eating sour grapes? where it comes from. And here the people of God recognize their religious system is broken. They have moved away from God. Now the wind direction has changed, and they're there, and the prophet Jeremiah prophesies over them, and what he says would have blown their minds. The days are coming, he says, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with Israel, a new covenant. Wait a second. What do you mean a new covenant? Israel has functioned for 16 or for for a thousand years under the covenant that God established with them through Moses where they lived the book of Deuteronomy every single day and suddenly the prophet in the moment where they're cursed Because they've broken Deuteronomy, they've broken the covenants with God. Now all of a sudden, Jeremiah, who's been beating them down with his prophecy, suddenly shifts gears in Jeremiah 31, and he says to them, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel. They must have frozen in their tracks. What did the prophet just say? What did the Lord just declare over us that there would be a new covenant? Wait a second, we've lived by the old covenant. The old covenant is all about God's blessing and His curse. And if we get out from under this thing, we're going to miss God's blessing, but it hasn't worked. And if you would read on with me in verse 31 of chapter 31. 
Here's what God says about the new covenant. Verse 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God makes this announcement. There's going to be a new covenant on that day. And no longer will it be based upon the law of God as given to Moses. That has not worked. It has broken. And can you imagine as being a person of God and you're looking for hope, your world has been crushed, it's been broken, and the voice of the prophet Jeremiah speaks over the nation and declares to the people of God that the old covenant has not worked, therefore God will establish a new one. There is a new covenant coming. It would be hard to underestimate, or should I say overestimate, the excitement and the joy that would have hit God's people. Listen to what God is saying. That the covenant that He established through Moses is now broken. It's depleted. It has run its course. And it is a failure. It has failed. And the prophet says with incredible grace, love, and mercy that God will establish a new covenant. I struggle to kind of articulate what it would mean to hear that if you were in ancient Israel all of those years ago. So I'd like to illustrate it the following way. It would be similar to me in my own personal life if my wife Fran approached me And she said to me after the service today, I would like to start a new family. My response would be, with who? (laughs) What? you got to be kidding me. We already have one of those. And she said, oh, I know. I want to start a new one. I'm thinking to myself, what? And the truth of it is that statement as genuine and loving as it is, would leave us with more questions than it would answers. But I can tell you that when the prophet Jeremiah announces over the people of Israel that God is going to bring a new covenant and it will not be like the old one, it will not be based on the law of Moses. It will not be based on that first covenant, but God is going to bring a new covenant to His people Israel. It would have blown their minds. They wouldn't have been able to believe it. They would have more questions than they would have answers. God fundamentally is going to change the way He relates to Israel. And the prophet brings it at a time when they're in terrible need. They're broken, dysfunctional. They need God. The announcement's made. But what's fascinating about this announcement is God says there are two things that are going to make up this new covenant. Two things. Here they are. The two things that God says are going to make up this covenant is this. God will write His laws on human hearts, and He will forgive and forget. I want you to catch this. The Old Testament law is going to be done, and instead God will write His laws on human hearts, and He will forgive and forget. You ought to be shouting hallelujah, amen, right now. Why? Here's why. The law of God is known as the Torah. The law of God is the first five books of the Bible. 
every Jewish person studies those five books. They are the basis of their relationship with God. When those laws, when the Torah was written, here's how it happened. They would take the original scroll that they knew was authentic, and a scribe, and if you've ever read the Newer Testament, you've met a scribe. In the Newer Testament, it would often say the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Scribes were men who were ordained and called by God to copy the Older Testament Scriptures. And here's what it would look like. They would take the book of Deuteronomy that was already written in Hebrew, and they would set it on a stand. And the scribe would look at this letter, this document, and they would letter by letter scribe a new one so that every jot and tittle was exactly the same. That's how the law of God was written. It would take a scribe one and a half years to copy the Older Testament. One and a half years. One scribe sitting every single day. And they did it out of a sense of worship. They did it out of a sense of providing and preserving the law of God. Because in that law is God's blessing. And if it changes at all, you might miss His blessing. It has to be exact. It must be completely identical to the original manuscript. When you think about that, then God shows up and says, I'm going to write my law on human hearts. The law up until this point in time had always been written on scrolls. Now God says, I'm going to write it on your heart. Now, what's even more amazing about this, how many of you have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You ever heard of them? You see, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a cachet of ancient documents that scribes had so carefully recorded, Hebrew letter for Hebrew letter, a year and a half just to do the Older Testament, and they had done this meticulously as an act of worship, and when the Roman Empire was coming to wipe out the Qumran community, they took those scrolls, about 1,100 of them, and they hid them in the caves. Why? They're preserving the very identity and the entity of God's blessing to Israel, and they hide them in the caves. And in the 1950s, a shepherd boy throws a stone in a cave to retrieve a sheep, and instead of hearing a a lamb bleat, he hears something break, and he goes down into the cave right near that Qumran community, and he finds a cave filled with scrolls. And in there were scrolls that validate the Bible you have on your iPhone or the Bible you hold in your lap. Here's why. In those scrolls was the complete book of Isaiah missing just a few letters. That scroll has been dated to 400 years before Christ. And what's stunning is that entire copy of the book of Isaiah is the exact book. Every letter is identical to the book you read and whenever you read the book of Isaiah. It it literally validated the Bibles that we read from. But what does God say? God says, I'm no longer going to have the Torah written out on scrolls. In my new covenant, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my word in your heart. In your heart. In other words, anyone who steps into the newer, con- uh, into the newer covenant will be fundamentally transformed by the living word of God. It'll no longer be on scrolls, it'll be written on human hearts, and God will have a people that intimately know Him from the heart. Then God also goes on to say that in this newer covenant, He's going to do something else. He's going to forgive, and He's going to forget. That last phrase, that Jeremiah prophesies over Israel. 
He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Can you imagine? Now, let me put it to you this way. Forgetting is usually a weakness. Isn't that true? How many of you, just this week, you forgot something important? Forgetting is a weakness. But I want to put it to you this way. It takes supernatural power to forget your sin. And God says under the new covenant, I'm going to shut off the scoreboard. I'm no longer going to keep track of your sin. I'm no longer going to keep count of your sin. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a God who puts His Spirit and His Word in your heart. And not only that, that I'm a God that will forgive you all your sins. And I'm also going to forget them. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone that says, I forgive you, but they never forget? Complicated, is it not? Some of you are going, I'm in that type of relationship and I'm the one that's messing it up. Think about God in this new covenant. God announces 600 years before Jesus is born, there will be a new covenant and when it happens, His Word will be alive in your heart and in the new covenant. He will no longer keep score. But if you step into that covenant, God will forgive and He will forget your sin. Believe me, those Jewish people were absolutely shocked. It meant everything would fundamentally change. Everything. Now, we pick up a verse 1,500 years after Deuteronomy and 600 years after Jeremiah. And you might say, Pete, what's the big deal? We've just looked at verses that are 1,500 years old before Jesus and 600 years before Christ. What in the world does that have to do with us? Everything. Everything. You see in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Here's what we repeat every time we take communion. Luke 22, 20. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying this cup is the what? What? The new covenant. And everyone sitting at that table would have fallen on the floor because what Jeremiah had prophesied was now right in front of them. Do you get that? Jesus announces as he begins to break that bread, he says this about himself. He says this cup is the new covenant in whose blood? His blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for, for you. And those sitting around that table that knew the book of Jeremiah would have known instantly that Jesus just connected himself to the new covenant, the new way of relating to God. Not only that, but then there's Christ on the cross. When Christ was on the cross, here's what he said. Luke 23, 34. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, said, Father... Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And anyone who heard that would have known that the new covenant is now alive and well. When he held up the cup, he announced, this is the new covenant in my blood. And while he was shedding his blood, and while he was dying for you and me, he looks up at his heavenly Father and says, bring the new covenant now. Heavenly Father, please forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. And God steps up from his heavenly throne and says, this is what I meant I'm a God who will forgive and forget the sins in the new covenant. But how does it happen? It happens 
through the cross of Christ. That's how it happens. You see, there is a backstory to Easter. The backstory to Easter began to rumble in the book of Deuteronomy. There's the law of God, there's a covenant. 600 years later, the prophet Jeremiah looks at those who are being crushed under the weight of their sin, and he announces to them, there is a new covenant coming, and when it comes, God will put his word in your heart. When he does, he will love you and bless you in such a way where he will forgive you your sin. And he will remember your sin no more. A whole new way of relating to God. And so where does this put us? It puts us at the base of the cross. It puts us at the base of the cross. And as we sit here two weeks weeks away from Easter, this is the backstory. This is the history of each Easter. And as we sit there and we look at the cross of Christ, we must understand that Jesus Christ is the cup of the new covenant and we find forgiveness through His blood and what He's done for us. Now here's what I know. Some of you, have been living as though you're under the Older Testament. Do you know how I know? Because you believe that God loves you when you do well. When you get up in the morning and you do everything right, by noontime you look at yourself and go, man, I'm having an awesome day. God must really love me. And then after work, you're driving home, someone cuts you off and you say a wordy dirt. And then all of a sudden, God doesn't love me anymore. That's Old Testament. It's not how this works. How it works is, is that I understand what Christ has done for me. And in the midst of my sin, I stand before His cross. And when I do so, I say to myself, new covenant, new covenant I don't earn God's approval by living right and doing good. I find approval before God through the cross of Christ. And when I say yes to Him, when I say yes to Him, that new covenant that He has established becomes mine and I'm washed free of the old covenant and the burden of living under the law of God. Do you understand? Too many people say to me, I'll say, Hey, explain your relationship to God, and they'll say this, and it's fundamentally flawed. They'll say, Pete, I know on that day when I stand before God, He'll accept me. And I ask why? Because I've done more good things than bad things. I'm a good person. Really? How do you know when the head count of what's good gets greater than the head count of what you've done bad? You imagine living with that every day? Which one is it? I said two wordy dirds today. Oh no. What do I do? God shows up. Says there's a new covenant. You don't have to live with that burden ever again. The new covenant is found in Jesus. And he announced it at the last supper. My blood is the new covenant. And on the cross, he cries out to his father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God announces, isn't it amazing, 2,600 years ago, I'm going to bring a new covenant. When I do, I will be their God, and they will be my people, and we will dwell together. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, can you take just a moment to close your eyes in God's presence? Where are you at with your relationship with God? Have you, through Jesus, stepped into the new covenant?
Have you said yes to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me? Have you said yes? If you haven't, I want to encourage you right here and right now to accept the grace of God and the new covenant and what God has done for us through Christ. But for every one of us, our faith in Jesus begins right here at the cross. It begins where I stand at the base of the cross and I identify Jesus' death for my sin. My sin. It's not the head count of whether I've done good or bad. It's that through the grace and the love of our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ came. And it's through the shedding of His blood that we have a new covenant in Him. If you've never accepted Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that right here and right now. You can experience a lightness in Him, a forgiveness in Him, a peace in Him that passes all understanding. And especially for those of you that threw the things of God over your shoulder. You threw away what you knew what was right. You threw it over your shoulder just like the people of Israel did all those years ago. Will you hear the cry of Jeremiah and the voice of Jesus right now saying to you, I will forgive you and I will remember your sin no more. Come to me. Come to me you've never prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to pray it something like this. Dear Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are, but what I do know is that I need new life in you, that I'm split down the middle. I have dissected myself, and where I've been and what I've done have separated me from my best self and specifically from you. So Jesus, I accept what you did on the cross is for me. Will you please forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you set me free from sin and my very self? And may I be born again in you. May I have new life in you. May I step fully into the new covenant that's executed through Jesus Christ. I accept it for myself. And I pray these things now. In Jesus' name, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And amen. We're going to take just a moment to celebrate the new covenant. Would you do that with me as we sing in worship and get ready to close?
clap offering together. Thank you, Jesus. For this is the new covenant I will make with my people Israel. I will write my word on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins. What? No more. Let's give the Lord a clap offering. God, we thank you. We thank you. As we close out our service, if you would like prayer, we have a prayer team that will meet you down front. If you prayed the prayer to accept Jesus, I want to encourage you to come down front as well. Just share with one of the prayer team members the commitment that you've just made. And now may the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and may he give you peace. Amen and amen. God bless you. Let's worship together, and when your heart's full, you may exit quietly. Let's worship. Just the Lord of all, let every throne before him fall the King of Kings will come adore our God who reigns forevermore. Majesty, Lord of all, let every throne before him fall the king of kings oh come adore our God who reigns forevermore majesty Lord of all let every throne before him fall the king Come adore our God who reigns 
prayer. Our prayer team is up here. Please feel free to come. Don't leave here until your heart is full, until you've responded to the call of God if he's, if he's speaking to your heart.
you 